I'd like to thank Ross for the opportunity and challenge of giving another talk here in the dojo. Gecko Dharma. With the sun high, a gecko lies deep underground, eyes wide open, no eyelids. On a moonless night, the Milky Way bends in the reflection of its eyes. My previous talk here was on frog dharma, which covered a variety of topics, including hearing sounds as they are, that was the frog call angle, and how having a career in biology has helped keep me close to nature. Being close to nature provides me with great practice opportunities, as nature is just as it is. When Ross asked me for a title or theme for the talk, Gecko Dharma immediately came to me, and that seemed like a good place to start. Because frogs are so popular and people are curious about them, I give lots of talks on frogs and answer lots of questions about them, including a talk last Friday to the WA Naturalist Club, and I'm leading a night walk for kids tomorrow night at Herdsman Lake. And so for these reasons, I'm usually seen as a frog guy. But based on the amount of work I've done on the different groups over the years, it would be more accurate to call me a gecko guy. What the two groups both have in common is that they are nocturnal, only coming out at night. This is the opposite of bobtails, dragon lizards, and goannas, the lizards you're most likely to see during the day. Because frogs and geckos are nocturnal, they have large eyes to make use of any available light. They are both soft to the touch, but with frogs they are cold and wet, and geckos are warm and dry. Take my word for it. They're both generally slow-moving and not particularly aggressive. Frogs not at all, but a gecko might give you a bite if you try to pick it up. Or it'll drop its tail. We don't want that either. I think geckos would be more popular if they were encountered more frequently, but the native species don't make loud sounds all night, and since people generally don't wander around outside with torches in the evening, they are rarely encountered. If you do see one in Perth, it's likely to be one of the three usual suspects, marbled geckos on the Swan Coastal Plain and barking geckos and the variegated Gahira gecko in the hills. Geckos are more diverse in species numbers than frogs, with about 140 geckos compared to 85 frogs. Appearance-wise, they are also more diverse in shape, especially when you throw in an endemic Gondwanan age radiation of completely limbless geckos called the pygopods, with their highest diversity here in the southwest. Now you've learned something, at least. Well, when I think about geckos, I think of how they got here and what makes them tick. What I mean is, where did this or that species evolve? And where did this or that adaptation come from? Who are its relatives? Where did they come from, and what did they look like? How do they radiate across the different environments in WA? The Southwest, the Arid Zone, the Pilbara, and the Kimberley, where I've spent a lot of my time looking for these animals. This is basic science stuff that, as a biologist, I enjoy thinking about. Basically, I've been thinking about this stuff since I was a boy who was into dinosaurs and outer space. In my grown-up life, my curiosity has led me to other fields of inquiry, 
including taking up a Zen practice. So tonight's talk is going to be a bit of an exploration of how some of these ideas intersect. I'll try to keep it very basic, and I'm putting forth these ideas with a light touch, hopefully. Occasionally in Zen talks and literature, there is a recurring theme that physics, especially quantum physics, is compatible with Zen principles. And this provides some comfort to us that Zen is aligned with science and therefore joins science on the pathway to some kind of shared truth. Even recently, Ross mentioned at some time or other that we are all essentially stardust. I think this physical concept, grounded in matter, is easier to understand than some of the quantum physics stuff, which tends to be highly mathematical and theoretical. After all, I'm a biologist for a reason, preferring the hands-on research that I do versus working with too many mathematical equations, as I don't have the mind for maths. Zen also shares with physics the idea that time and space are relative, that everything is happening at once, and that there's only one moment. All are compatible with Zen beliefs. All these things I can intuit, but not actually quite properly grasp. Not to mention, I'm still an unenlightened student, struggling on my cushion most nights, oscillating between being in the moment to basically spacing out for long chunks of time. But anyway, many of us like learning about things like nebulas and black holes and all that stuff, and watching lots of science fiction and alien invaders and things like that. So this space, physics, Zen connection resonates with our beliefs about practice and is also topical given people's fascination with space. However, on Dharma sharing nights, when discussing the precepts, I have discovered I will often say something that speaks to evolutionary principles. And so in thinking about what I might cover in this talk, I thought I would speak to some of these ideas. We're humans, so some of the ideas dabble in evolutionary psychology, but its roots go a bit deeper. So at this point, I'd like to talk about how an evolutionary perspective is compatible with the Zen perspective. Not only that, but that understanding a bit of evolutionary biology can help us with our practice, even when following the precepts. All right, I'm going to read a bit from Charlotte Joko Beck's Nothing Special, Chapter 1, Paragraph 1. Whirlpools and Stagnant Waters We are rather like whirlpools in the river of life. In flowing forward, a river or stream may hit rocks, branches, or irregularities in the ground, causing whirlpools to spring up spontaneously here and there. Water entering one whirlpool quickly passes through and rejoins the river, eventually joining another whirlpool and moving on. Though for short periods it seems to be distinguishable as a separate event, the water in the whirlpools is just the river itself. The stability of a whirlpool is only temporary. The energy of the river of life forms living things. A human being, a cat or dog, trees and plants... Then what held the whirlpool in place is itself altered, and the whirlpool is swept away, re-entering the larger flow. The energy that was a particular whirlpool fades out, and the water passes on, perhaps to be caught again and turned for a moment into another whirlpool. 
This is a beautiful analogy of our lives here on earth. And it's one that's stayed with me since I, since first reading these words over 20 years ago when I began my Zen practice. But, and yes, there is a but, our lives, our human form, have a different thread running through them that makes us differ significantly from whirlpools. Heredity. Unlike whirlpools or other familiar physical phenomena such as rocks, streams, and stars, biological forms have an ancestor-descendant relationship with heredity as the glue that through time makes life a continuum of information existing in the world. It is this hereditary information that gives some of the stardust right here on Earth its particular shape and form. We know from evolutionary biology that life forms are long-running averages of success and failures in the past. These life forms are far from perfect, doing the best they can with the forms earlier ancestors bequeathed to them, the vagaries of environmental change, and the interactions with all the other life forms. Bodies, environments, and their interactions are massively complex, as with the complex phenomena of physics, medicine, and other fields. However, unlike physics, evolutionary and ecological patterns tend to be more locally manifest and are more fundamentally historically contingent. So things like birds can be viewed as flying dinosaurs. We know that amphibians had fish-like ancestors and reptiles had amphibious ancestors before then. But reptiles still provide an aquatic environment inside the eggs or inside the mother for developing embryos, which is a vestige of our aquatic origins. For humans, the relatively recent adoption of an upright stance causes us lower back pain and other ailments our bodies suffer from when we change from four legs to two. A greatly extended life compared to earlier generations makes this situation worse, as we have bodies that are built to last for only about 40 years, give or take a decade, so that as we age, we're off the math health-wise. And I'm sure older gorillas must also suffer some lower back pain too. The Dharma, incomparably profound and minutely subtle, is rarely encountered even in hundreds of thousands of millions of kalpas. We now can see it, listen to it, accept and hold it. May we completely realize the true nature of the Tathagata. Whenever I hear this chant and the words, we now can see it, listen to it, I think of the wonderful eyes and ears that we possess. On our cushions, we work with the bodies we have, with our breath, posture, and the soreness in the legs after a long day of sitting. We also possess the brains to make sense of those words, not to mention our feet to take us to sit with other Sangha members where these words are spoken. In the not-too-distant past, geologically speaking, we did not have the means to gather in this way and form a Sangha to explore our place in the world and the world in us. One recent invention of humans is the development of an abstract language and a system of writing, and now other means to capture information in perpetuity. So in our Zen tradition, we have a written and oral history of important teachings. 
Another nice thing about living at this particular place and time. So at this precious point in the timeline of humanity, we Sangha members have a rare opportunity to realize our true natures. Okay, so that was some of the positive, positive bits. Um, so now to the more challenging aspects. The three poisons of Buddhism. Greed, hatred, and ignorance. Why are we even saddled with these things? Why couldn't we be like blissful, happy puppies all the time? Or perfectly enlightened from the get-go? Why is there all this worry and tussle going on through our lives? Let's start with greed. Why do we even have greed in the first place? Well, one thing about biological organisms is that, historically, they've always been about the self. Sure, complex bodies are built of a team of cells, some from different genealogical histories, such as our mitochondria. But the main thing in evolutionary biology is to leave some descendants, and to do this, you're going to have to gobble up some resources. Enter greed. Sure, you can choose not to have descendants, but from the point of view of evolution, you simply won't leave a pattern in nature that persists into the future. You and your would-be descendants won't be bothering the stardust. An example from religion that makes this point is the 18th and 19th century group, the Shakers. You might have heard of them. One of their beliefs was that they were against procreation. And so naturally they had a recruitment problem relying on adoption and converts. I read recently that uh, one of the sisters passed away and I believe they're down to two individuals now. What about hatred? From the self's point of view, lots of other things seem like they're out to get you. And in evolutionary terms, you're not paranoid. Kipling famously wrote, Nature red in tooth and claw which conjures up images of a predator subduing its prey, or, if you're barracking for the underdog, a prey species fighting back against its attacker to survive with whatever means it has. When the self feels threatened, fear arises and hatred is a part of the natural reaction for self-preservation. From a group point of view, humans have a long history of us-and-them thinking where hatred tends to thrive. So your in-group might be in a perceived conflict with another group, and this includes your family, your group of friends, or increasingly a larger tribe like a country or even a religion. Ignorance. One thing all organisms are interested in is information and predicting the future. Knowledge is power, and the self wants that knowledge in order to navigate the world. For humans... This means planning, scheming, and mulling over this or that scenario over and over in our heads. Ignorance arises endlessly because we move forward through time. With the march of time, everything changes. Nothing stays the same. So forward we go into the unknown, and this unknown makes us unsettled and triggers the spinning thoughts. Well, those are some basic ideas on the three poisons that um, come to mind. But how does an evolutionary perspective bear on the precepts? 
So I'll focus here on the ones that I feel seem to have been set up in order to counter some tendencies our evolutionary history has given us. I take up the way of not killing. Plants are autotrophs. Auto meaning self, troph meaning feeding, which means that they assemble their bodies using energy from the sun. Animals are heterotrophs, hetero other, meaning they eat other life forms. We're animals, so killing comes naturally to us, literally. Robert Aitken Roshi's explanation of why he was a vegetarian rings true here. Because cows scream louder than carrots. I take up the way of not stealing. Are you honest when no one's looking? Gathering resources is essential for all organisms to flourish and reproduce. And stealing and getting away with it can provide large payoffs in evolutionary biology and economics. Maximum gain, minimal costs. The naturalistic fallacy in evolutionary biology occurs when we derive ought from is in nature. So we observe something in nature and then we make conclusions about how we ought to live, typically with disastrous results. So plunging right into this fallacy, we might judge the COVID virus to be quite a serious thief. It's so lazy, it doesn't even have its own metabolic machinery. It just puts instructions in the hard-earned cells of your body which say, make more viruses, just like my mama virus. And so your body is weakened as a virus steals your energy to do the virus's bidding to make more copies of itself that you cough out into the air. Of course, this is quite ridiculous to morally judge a kind of half-living thing that does not even have any eyes, ears, nose, tongue, or mind to speak of. But back to humans. So yes, in the past our ancestors did all they could to persist in the world, and they were good at it, even resorting to stealing if it presented itself with possibly a reproductive reward and leaving descendants into the future. But right here and now, as Zen practitioners in our modern societies, one of our challenges is to realize we already have everything we need. No stealing is necessary. It will not gain you anything, since there is nothing to gain. So when you steal from others, you ultimately steal from your own potential for awakening. So try not to steal. Be honest. I take up the way of not misusing sex. Everything living today can trace back their lineage about 3.7 billion years ago from current estimates. If you trace all the way back, you can meet your microbial ancestors and say, hello mother. From anywhere between about one to three billion years ago, when sex was invented, we can be confident that all our ancestors in an unbroken chain reaching back through time got lucky at some point or other. In other words, we are all descended from some pretty sexy people. Studies of bobtail lizards have revealed them to be a more or less monogamous species, just as in modern Western societies. 
Why are bobtails famous for being monogamous? Because it's so rare in the animal kingdom. Most animals, including our closest relatives, the apes, are highly promiscuous. So be careful with the billions of years old, wonderful gift of sex with all its intimacy, closeness, and fun. Try not to misuse sex. I take up the way of not speaking falsely. I take up the way of not discussing the faults of others. I take up the way of not praising myself while abusing others. These precepts, in one way or another, have bearings on social standing within the tribe, although there are other aspects too, of course. He said, she said, and then they did this, and oh my God, they did that. How terrible, what a scandal, I can't believe they did that. All this chatter has the effect of pushing others down the social ladder while climbing up a few rungs yourself. The problem with gossip is that from a community point of view, it tends to cement a person's character in the eyes of the group. Gossip is rife with speculation, yet confidently wades into people's motivations and actions, where in reality we simply don't know. Yet, indulging in a session of juicy gossip can be quite alluring, owing to the prospect of gaining information about someone in the group. As social animals, learning information about group members can be highly valuable in evolutionary terms, and this provides an explanation of why discussing others' business is so tempting. So part of our practice is to recognize these urges and work with them, possibly by simply zipping it as a first step to not perpetuate the goss. I take up the way of not indulging in anger. Anger can be seen as the fight-or-flight response when confronted with a stressful situation, often a situation where the self feels threatened and the defenses come up. And like the saying goes in sports, offense is the best defense. For the Zen student, when anger arises, we can explore if we are really at risk, probably not, or if our preconceived ideas of what we thought was going to happen haven't turned out that way, in a it's-my-party-and-I-can-cry-if-I-want-to kind of way, or it's-my-party-and-I-can-be-angry-if-I-want-to in this case. A key to this precept is the word indulging. This recognizes anger as a natural emotion. But as anger arises, do we recognize and work with it, or do we merely react, lashing out at this or that person? Or even chucking a wobbly at your phone, malfunctioning, or upon seeing a parking ticket on your windscreen. So, as Charlotte Joko Beck says, don't be angry. Well, this talk has been a bit speculative, a bit armchair zen for sure, but I thought I'd put a few ideas out there for us to explore tonight. And I hope seeing our natures from this perspective will at least be some food for thought. We come to zen from different perspectives in different walks of life, so this is a bit of my take on things. Yes, we're stardust but not a random bit of stardust, but of a form handed down through the action of heredity and all the previous lives and environments this came to us from, including a healthy dose of haphazard happenings in the past that have led us to here and now. That's all there, too. 
So what I'm saying is you don't necessarily need a telescope or a Photoshop colored nice looking picture of outer space interpreted from radio waves to appreciate our place in the world. Nature is before our eyes here on earth, below our feet, inhaled into our lungs. We work with the teachings the ancestors and our lineage have left for us, as well as the bodies our biological ancestors have left us after so many years of evolution. So what is Gecko Dharma? The gecko goes about its evening with its wonderful abilities. Clinging to rocks or bushes, depending on the species. Combating ignorance by wandering over a hill at the edge of its territory. Maybe avoiding greed by turning in early and avoiding an unfortunate encounter with an owl. Gecko, night, dharma, day, The she-oaks whisper, a gecko sleeps, eyes open.